Open your Bibles to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. I want to take the time that we have this morning and compare Arminianism and Calvinism to the Word of God. Amen. There are many that look to James Arminius as a great theologian and one of the founders of their churches by way of theology, like the Methodists, who have extensive sites on the Internet all about his life and his writings. There are others that look to John Calvin as an originator of that form of doctrine that they believe. We look to the Scriptures of God for the origination of our doctrine, and we fear no man, nor do we respect them in the way that other men respect them. We believe, let God be true, but every man a liar. James Arminius, John Calvin, Jonathan Crosby, and you. Let God be true, but every man a liar. You had some precious scriptures read to you this morning. Brother Red stopped every mouth that all the world should be guilty before God with Romans 3. Yes. Then Brother Eric told us how God remedied that terrible situation by choosing us in Christ before the world began. Yeah, and then Brother Michael told us that in time, though we were acting and had the nature of the children of wrath, He quickened us by His grace. Yeah, what a glorious salvation. Amen. We want to try that by the Word of God and compare it to uh, Arminianism and Calvinism. I want to start with these verses because of what they tell us. And you've heard them many times before. Many, many times. But I never want you to fear man. I want you to fear the Word of God. I want to read the three verses, 98 through 100. Amen. Psalm 119, 98 through 100. Thou through thy commandments hast made me wiser than mine enemies. For they are ever with me. That is, God's commandments are ever with Him. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for Thy testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep Thy precepts. Thank You, Lord. This is not a haughty attitude. This is not an arrogant man writing. This is the sweet psalmist of Israel that said because of God's commandments that he kept with him at all times, that he meditated upon, and that he obeyed, he was wiser and had more understanding and wisdom than his enemies, his teachers, and the ancients. God is offering you that kind of wisdom this morning from His Word. The Lord has hid His truth from the wise and prudent and revealed it unto babes. Be a babe this morning and rejoice. Let's be a babe and toss palm branches in the way and say, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Because the Lord is showing us his truth. In the 128th verse, David added this verse that we know so well. Therefore, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right. And I hate every false way. They're trying to legislate hate out of existence, 
But the Bible tells me that the perfect and blessed Lord Jesus Christ loved righteousness and hated iniquity. This passage tells me that David loved God's law, verse 97, and verse 128, he hated every false way. We're going to do the same. We're going to love God's law and hate any doctrine that disagrees with it. Truth depends upon what God revealed to us and nothing else. And let's take our stand there. It's a wonderful stand. It's a rock for our feet. It's an anchor for our souls. The Bible tells us that whatsoever is highly esteemed among men is an abomination to God. If men highly esteem it, you can judge, based on the Word of God, that it is an abomination to the God of heaven. You know, the Lord said, Woe unto you when all men speak well of you, for so spake they of the false prophets. That's what the Bible teaches us. It's often difficult to go against the wisdom of teachers and ancients, especially when they're esteemed as highly as James Arminius and John Kelvin. But we had a Bible study on Wednesday evening about a young man, and what was his name? Elihu. Was Elihu afraid of teachers and ancients and old men? No, he didn't. He said, the inspiration of the Almighty has given me some understanding, and I am about to explode. Therefore, listen to me. I'll give you my opinion. Now, we have God's inspiration right here, and we have an opinion. We have an opinion that both James Arminius and John Calvin were both wrong. And we're going to stand with the Word of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Most of the Christian religion is divided into either camp. You're either an Arminian or you're a Calvinist. And you young people need to learn those words, not because they're found in the Bible, but because you're going to be confronted with them, and I want you to be able to give a Bible answer to them. And I'm going to show you how we're going to do that in just a couple of minutes. I will show you. We have visual aids this morning that we're going to hand out in just a minute. But you know, currently we're outside the great body of Christendom that that likes to lump itself into Calvinists or Arminians. They can go their way. They're departing from sound doctrine to follow fables. And we want to stand with God's Scriptures. Amen. We are closest to the Calvinists. But let's remind ourselves a little bit about Calvinism. John Calvin, who lived in the early 1500s and spent his productive time in Geneva, Switzerland, where he took a city and set what he understood to be the laws of the Old Testament and some of the New as the rules for that city. And from that came Presbyterianism along with a few modifications. But they and others love to have a state church. And that is one of the things that we disagree with. We, We do believe in the separation of church and state in that the state ought not to be requiring any particular form of religion, especially a false one. Because God's people have never worried about that in the New Testament. Paul never had, did not have one sentence to write about getting government to legislate laws to protect him. He was going to obey God no matter what laws they had. Let's talk briefly about Calvinism. Very, very briefly. When you say the words Calvinism, it means basically a whole lot of things that John Calvin and the other reformers believed. Martin Luther nailed 95 disagreements with the Roman Catholic Church on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, 
in 1517. John Kelvin was just a little boy. He was eight years old. And so there were reformers that looked at the Roman Catholic Church as the true church. They had been raised in that church, but they needed to reform it because it had so many errors in it. We are not reformers like that. We do not believe there was anything in the Catholic Church to reform. It was the cage of every evil bird and foul spirit and a habitation of devils, according to the Bible. We wouldn't look at reforming it. We would look at abolishing it. Because alongside the Roman Catholic Church were our ancestors in the faith existing all that time persecuted by that church. And they were holding to the apostolic doctrine, not all the imaginations of the Romanists, who took paganism, Judaism, and a little bit of the New Testament and corrupted it together to make their mongrel religion. We are not part of that. John Calvin, Martin Luther, and other reformers did not return all the way to apostolic Christianity. So when we look at them closely, we can find a bunch of Romanism. We can see some Catholicism leaking through. They didn't totally get rid of sacramentalism. These are important words. If you ever read anything or you deal with anyone that's different from us, you're going to run into some of these words. Sacramentalism. See, the Roman Catholic Church has seven sacraments. The Presbyterian Church has two sacraments. A sacrament is an outward sign that conveys inward grace. It's something you do outwardly, but it affects you on the inside. Now, the Roman Catholic Church has seven. They start when you're born with infant baptism, and they end with extreme unction when they anoint you with holy water again in order to save your soul. Seven things done outwardly that give inward grace. We do not believe that things done outwardly by man bring inward grace. We believe that God's operation within the man brings inward grace. Amen. And it's a huge difference. But that sacramentalism and the Calvinists did not get rid of all that. They dropped some of it, but not all of it. The ritualism, the formality of their worship services, the formality of how they approached God, the ministerial elite, the exaltation of worldly education, the state church, these are things that they did not get rid of from Rome. Kelvin and most Calvinists. And today, people associate Presbyterians with Calvinists more than any other denomination. Just for your information, and and most of you know that. But most Calvinists, there's a few Baptists that are Calvinists, but most Calvinists err on the subject of baptism. They're still sprinkling, which is the wrong mode. They're still doing it to babies, which is the wrong subject. And they're still thinking that it either regenerates Lutherans, Episcopalians, Methodists, and others, or that it is a guarantee of the covenant salvation, Presbyterians. They still look at its result as conveying inward grace. They believe, Presbyterian, don't you let them deny it. Go look at their confessions of faith. You have it right in the back of your red hymnal there, the Westminster Confession of Faith. They believe that infant baptism guarantees the future regeneration of that child. Read it in their own words. See, they don't want to be a Catholic and say that it regenerates them right in the spot. It'll just regenerate them later in life by making them a member of the covenant of grace. We deny that kind of stuff. That's not taught in the Bible. They are in error on the Lord's Supper, whether it's the consubstantiation of the Lutherans, or the spiritual conveyance of the Lord Jesus Christ of the Presbyterians. They're in error on the first two persons in the Trinity because they believe that Jesus Christ is a begotten God by eternal generation. 
They're in error on the identity of the church. They think it came out of Rome. They think they've done a good deed. That Rome was the true church and just needed a little work, a little polishing. But you know, when you go look in the book, the book of Revelation, Rome had someone that she was killing all the time. Who were those people? They're in error on the relationship of the church to civil government as they like state churches. Brethren, we don't want a state church even if it was John Calvin's state church. Because do you know what John Calvin would do to us if he heard our preaching? He'd do the same thing to us that he did to Michael Servetus. Burned him at the stake. Michael Servetus was burned at the stake by John Calvin in the city of Geneva, Switzerland for two reasons. Number one, he denied the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ. He said Jesus Christ was the only begotten Son of God by incarnation in Mary's womb. And number two, he repudiated and hated infant baptism. And for those two reasons, he was burned to death. They can say all they want to about how it happened. And Michael Servetus may have had some other false views. But the, the laws and rules and the final accusations against Michael Servetus by the Council of Geneva were those two crimes. And guess what, brethren? We're guilty of both. We're thankful right now to live in a nation that allows any religion to operate. You, yes, yes, yes. I could sit around and fantasize about our nation saying, in a congressional hearing tomorrow, we have discovered the Church of Greenville. And we would like to enforce that worship on all the nation. That's just a ridiculous fantasy. Anything short of that is going to be some measure of compromise with us. And so the Lord has arranged us to have the greatest liberty that people have ever had to worship the way we do by allowing any faith to operate in our country. Yes, it nauseates me when I see devil worshipers protected and Muslims protected in our country. But this God has arranged a wonderful setup for us. It's a whole lot better than Rome that enforced paganism and killed Christians. It's a whole lot better than the Holy Roman Empire that enforced their brand of Christianity and killed Christians. It's a whole lot better than John Kelvin that enforced Calvinism and killed Michael Servetus. Let's be thankful for the liberty that we have. It's called the Reformed faith. Because what they've done is reform Roman Catholicism. And so it's called the Reformed faith. And John Kelvin is one of its main teachers. We're thankful for some Calvinists because we've read them and they've helped us come to an understanding of the truth in some of our individual lives in the past. There are men that God shows truth to, but He doesn't show all the truth to them. You know, some of you have listened recently to the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, by Jonathan Edwards. For that sermon, and the humility, and the fear of the Lord that it promotes, we are thankful. For the fact that Jonathan Edwards was a baby-sprinkling, eternal sonship heretic, we are not thankful. But the Lord expects us to, to measure every man by the Word of God. And so we do. And some men teach well, and we're thankful for how they've helped us. And then we have to see error in them, and we must hold them at a distance on those points. Since we deny free will, and since we believe in election and predestination, we're called Calvinists by most people. If you're ever pushed to a choice, are you an Arminian or a Calvinist, you can say we're Calvinists. Because that's somebody giving you two choices. But then if they give you a sentence to explain, the way I explain it is, 
we're not really Calvinists, we're hyper-Calvinists. Now that alarms them, because the term hyper-Calvinist is scary to them. When they, anybody that knows what the words mean, hyper means beyond, in excess, farther than. We went farther than John Calvin. When they hear the words hyper-Calvinist, they believe that you must believe, you don't believe in evangelism, you're a fatalist and an antinomian. An antinomian is someone that believes there is no law of God for Christians, they're just saved by grace and they can live any way they wish. Well, that's just the farthest thing from the truth. We do believe in evangelism, we just have a different object of our evangelism than other people have. We're hyper-Calvinists. John Calvin did not go as far as we do, as we shall soon see. But I want all of our young people to know the difference between these systems. John Calvin came first in the 1500s and then James Arminius. John Calvin did not originate TULIP. Remember, what does TULIP stand for? And every child needs to memorize this. TULIP has five letters in it, and each letter stands for a doctrine of Calvinism. Because when you're asked, I want you to be able to know how to respond and how to respond biblically to those five points. TULIP starts with T, and the T stands for total depravity. Man is totally depraved and unable to cooperate with God for his salvation. The U stands for unconditional election that God chose some to salvation not based on anything he saw in them. It's unconditional election. L stands for limited atonement that Jesus died only for the elect. I stands for irresistible grace that when God reaches forth to regenerate and convert, he's irresistible. None of the elect can resist that to hinder it and keep it from happening All the elect will be regenerated, will be converted, and saved. And then P, perseverance of the saints. God will guarantee the perseverance of the saints. God's elect will persevere in faith and holiness until death and then be taken to heaven. Those are the five points of Calvinism. Calvin never did a tulip. He never drew a tulip on a piece of paper and said T-U-L-I-P. He never summarized his gospel in five points. That was done after he died. But Kelvin, because he was a popular speaker and preacher and writer in Europe, popularized election and predestination and the sovereignty of God and salvation as far as he took it. Now there was a Kelvin, then he died, as all men do. Now there was a Calvinist in Leiden, Holland, named James Arminius. And he was a university professor, but he began to be disillusioned about Kelvin's doctrines. And so he began preaching against all five points. Not just one, all of them. And then he died. He died in 1609. After him, his followers, now remember in Holland at this time, and you don't remember, you may not even know it, But in Holland at this time, it was a state church, just like in Geneva, and it was very predestinarian and very much Calvinistic, based on election and predestination, the sovereign grace of God and salvation, and those five points that I told you, though they hadn't been listed as five yet. However, the followers of James Arminius, I'm about done with this history. The followers of James Arminius petitioned the government 
to rethink the religion that they were enforcing on the nation, and they came up with five points. It's called the Remonstrance. They debated against the government that there were five objections they had to the theology that was being enforced in the churches of Holland. Well, that government sat in session and answered back with five answers, and that's where we get TULIP. Those are the five points. It's called Calvinism, but John Calvin never knew about the five points. It was the State Church of Holland enforcing total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints on the churches of Holland. You say, well, that sounds exciting. Do you mean there was a nation that actually enforced that? Yes. And the last nation to do it was South Africa. Because that's where the Dutch went, and they took their religion of predestination with them. And they had state churches there. But I want to tell you something. When our fathers in the faith in England were looking for a place to go, they didn't find refuge in Holland, they found refuge in America. And they came here because state churches have never been to the profit of God's people who are standing for an apostolic faith and who have no fear of man. As long as you fear men and will cooperate and put up with the ritualistic, formal religion of a state church, then you can stay. But if you're going to stand in the Word of God alone and tell us that we're wrong and preach whatever God leads you to preach, you need to get out of this state. So, that didn't work well for our fathers, and so they came to this country. After the Armenians, you know, they left Holland and went other places, and since the Armenians or the followers of Arminius directly, we have John Wesley, Charles Finney, D.L. Moody, Billy Graham, and many more past and present just like them that have taught the doctrine of James Arminius on those five points. And I just listed some of the most famous names in American Christianity. But they were Arminian heretics. From the Synod of Dort, which was in Holland, which came up with the five points against the Arminians. After that came John Owen in England, the chaplain to Oliver Cromwell, John Gill, a Baptist preacher who wrote extensively in London, England, Charles Hodge, Arthur Pink, and other Calvinists came from that line. And so today, the few churches that are left that care about doctrine, you know, it's almost funny to preach a sermon like this today. Because the average megachurch doesn't even get close to considering anything even close to doctrine. But in the past, all these divisions were known by everyone. Everyone knew whether they were a Calvinist or an Arminian. Because there were wars fought over these doctrines. But today, hardly anyone cares because they've departed from sound doctrine for fables and entertainment. I want you to understand these things, and I want you to understand the Bible explanation and answer for them. I could use four helpers. Thank you, Grandpa. There's about three per pew. And as they're passed out, I hope that you will take this and use it as a mental picture for us to now take the Word of God and try Arminianism and Calvinism by the Word of God. 
you have on one side the pictures of John Calvin and James Arminius and the ages that they lived and the years that they lived, and you have the Word of God that we've already read so far. But let's turn to that second side, and this is where the children, in a few minutes that we have together, because I don't want to preach long series on things like this. We're going to do it in one service. I want you to grasp what TULIP stands for, where an Arminian stands on each of those five points, where a Calvinist stands on each of those five points, and where we stand. And you can see that you only need to memorize 12 things. Thank you. Five points of the Arminians, five of the Calvinists, because we'll agree with three of them, and two separate points. Let's turn to this page. And in our Bibles, let's turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Thank you, helpers. Who said we didn't have a crew of ushers? Wars have been fought over these points. Churches have split over these points all over the world and in this city. Recently. Because it is a fundamental difference in how you approach the Bible and the doctrine of salvation and the difference is great. There is a gulf between these two that no man can cross. These are not compatible in any way, shape, or form. Not even Calvinism and Arminianism are compatible at all. But we're even less compatible. We're not compatible with Calvinism. And it's important to remember that Arminianism is so blatantly wrong that it only takes a novice in the Word of God to realize that it's wrong if they've been shown or taught anything. Calvinism is more subtle. If you were handed a U.S. $50 bill that was pink, you would know that it wasn't even a counterfeit. It was a joke. But if you were handed a $50 bill that was very close to the original, that would be a more dangerous piece to take. And so it is with Calvinism. It's more dangerous for our church than is Arminianism because it's so close to the truth. And its errors are more subtle. And some of the things that I've already mentioned go hand in hand with Calvinism. And it's very difficult to shed yourself of some of those things. For instance, and let me just take one little for instance. The Presbyterians, when they looked at Roman Catholicism with its seven sacraments, shrunk it to two. Because they really couldn't handle the other five and we're thankful for that. But there is no such thing as a sacrament in the New Testament, so why'd they even have two? There is no such thing as an outward sign that conveys inward grace. And if you go look at a Presbyterian definition of baptism and the Lord's Supper, they are confused about those two ordinances. Instead of them being pure metaphors, us showing a figure or a symbol of something, they have them conveying literal grace. Now, Baptists come along and they want to be Calvinists. And so they look at the Westminster Confession of Faith, and a hundred Baptist preachers did this in 1689 in London, they look at the Presbyterian Confession of Faith, and they, we want two sacraments. But we don't like sacraments. That, that word just makes my skin crawl because I'm a Baptist and not a Presbyterian. So they come up with two ordinances. And they want to isolate two ordinances from the rest. Now this is just a little point. But why would you isolate two ordinances? Nowhere in the Bible are those two ordinances isolated quite like that. Right. 
There's a whole lot of ordinances in the New Testament. And we should obey them all. Not just two. And not just two that are more important than the rest. One only occurs once in your life. And the other occurs whenever you have the Lord's Supper. We want to be very careful about our Bibles. The Bible has a whole lot more ordinances for us than just baptism and the Lord's Supper. But where did that two come from? It came from the Presbyterians who took it from the Romans because they isolated seven things that convey grace. Forget that point now. Calvinism and Arminianism. Children, the word is tulip. Spell it with me. T-U-L-I-P. Tulip. Those five letters will help you know this whole page rather easily. If you'll just remember that, and then you want to remember the scriptures we're going to look at. Let's look at that top left box. We're under tulip, where we have the T, we have total depravity, and we're looking at Arminianism. Here's what the paragraph says. Though morally hurt by sin in Eden, man has a free will to choose to obey God. Sin has not destroyed his ability or desire to cooperate with God. He can and must obey savingly before God will regenerate him. That's what an Arminian believes. They deny total depravity. They say man isn't totally depraved. Man is still pretty good. Man still has a free will. His will isn't depraved. It's free. He can do anything he wants. He can believe on Jesus Christ. He can believe the gospel. He can accept the gospel. He can choose to obey the gospel. The Calvinist says in response to that, Man's nature is corrupt due to his sin in Eden. He lost his ability and desire to choose good. He will not and cannot please God by nature. He must be given a new nature by God in order to do righteousness. We agree with the Calvinist on that point. Because that's what the Bible teaches. Let's look at the Bible. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 17. You can see the verses at the bottom. We'll just look at a couple of them for each point. Genesis 2.17. I'm going to get verse 16 as well because it's a full sentence. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. God told Adam and Eve, That in the day you eat of that fruit, thou shalt surely die. Adam, you will surely die in the day you eat of that fruit. The devil came along and told Eve, thou shalt not surely die. Ye shall not surely die. Genesis chapter 3, verse 4. And so Adam and Eve ate of that fruit. Now, Adam didn't die physically for 930 years. If you've been reading your Bible, Adam lived to be 930 years old. So he did not die that day physically. Who do we believe? Moses, that said he lived to be 930? Or God, who said he was going to die? Or the devil, that said he would not surely die? Or do we rightly divide Scripture and say that there's two deaths under consideration? This is how we approach the Bible. When God said, thou shalt surely die in the day that you eat of it, we understand Adam to have died spiritually that day. He lost his nature that had affections and desire and ability toward God. He was now corrupt, depraved, 
So we believe in total depravity from this one passage alone. He's totally depraved. Because how total is dead? How many classes will you take when you're dead? What will you wear when you're dead? How many meals a day will you eat when you're dead? None. Because you're totally dead. You're either totally dead or you're alive. And so when it says you're dead, we believe that. You're totally depraved. Children, do you understand? God said, Adam, in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. He died. When the Arminians come along and say that man is still alive and still able to please God, who are they lining up with? The devil devil himself. Brother, I still remember every conversation I had with your father in the last two years of his life. You know what he wanted to talk about. He knew this so well. Brother Leon Carnell's father would always want to remind me about what Arminianism was based on. It was based on believing the lie of the devil, ye shall not surely die. And that is what Arminianism says. You still have a free will. You're not dead like the Calvinist tries to say to you. You need to accept Jesus today, and you're able to accept Him. You come down front right now and give your heart to Jesus if you want to be saved. And so they put back within man the life and the ability to choose God. But the Bible says he was dead. Now, as soon as he ate that fruit, what can we see about the death that occurred? We believe God, first of all. Do you believe? I believe God. That he died right then. And then I look at it and I can see how he died. Instantly, he had guilt and shame, even with Eve, and there was no one else there. It wasn't like he was standing in a football stadium and realized he was naked. He was standing with his wife in a world that had no other inhabitants. Because all of a sudden he was covered with guilt and shame. What did he do about it? He tried to cover it himself. Was there any repentance? Was he saying, Eve, do you know what we've done? Let's drop to our knees and pray and beg God for mercy. Was there anything like that? Sewing fig leaves together to try to cover their nakedness. Then when they heard the Lord God walking in the cool of the evening and they heard him calling, where did they go? They hid in the trees of the garden. So instead of running toward the Lord, they ran away from Him. Then, when the Lord God found them and hauled them out into the pathway where they were used prone to walk, they blamed each other for their sins. Adam blamed Eve for his sin. Eve blamed the devil for her sin. Still, no repentance. No fear of God. No fear of God in the sense of the Bible fear of God. The Bible fear of God, you would have run to the Lord and begged Him for mercy. Now let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2 that our brother read to us just a little while ago. Ephesians chapter 2. This is why we believe total depravity. Our little children, we believe, are conceived in sin. They're born in sin. And they have a sin nature that unless God changes that nature, they would only sin. They would love sin. They would love the devil. And they would hate God and Jesus Christ and the gospel. And that that is the condition of all mankind, without exception. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. See, there's that death. There's that total depravity. If you're dead toward God, or you're dead spiritually, that's total. That's why we have a T. Totally depraved. Depraved means just bad, wicked, and corrupt. It means that when we're born, all we can think are bad thoughts. You say, well, I once saw a Boy Scout help a woman across the street. Yes, you did. You know why? Because he wanted a merit badge. That's bad. 
if the Boy Scout helped the woman across the street because he feared God and loved his neighbor, then it's good. But do you know what would have to put you that in your heart to be able to think that and forget the merit badge? The Lord God of heaven. Amen. You say that Bill Gates gives billions every year. Yes. Have you ever seen his tax liability? Why do you think he gives billions? Because his tax accountant tells him you better. You say, you're just totally criticizing his spirit. I'm saying there's nothing in that man to evidence any fear of God at all. If you've ever read anything about Bill Gates, there is no fear of God in his heart or eyes. We are Look at this passage. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. And here is a description of that death. Wherein, in time past, ye walked according to the course of this world. You lived a lifestyle just like the worldly pagans around you. According to the prince of the power of the air, you were following the devil, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. You were a child of disobedience. You had a nature of disobedience. Your father was the devil of disobedience. Among whom also we all, Paul's including himself and the other apostles, had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. We had a nature, looked like, acted like, talked like, everyone that God's going to judge under His wrath in the lake of fire. Total depravity. The Arminian says man is still alive. He's still alive and kicking. He's healthy. He's, he's got a cold from sin. All he's got to do is come forward and get his vitamin C called vitamin Jesus. And he can be saved. Listen, they make fun of the Lord God in so many ways, it is sickening. They believe that Jesus Christ has written a check on the bank of heaven called eternal life, and all you've got to do is cash it at the bank of the altar. On and on they go with their stories. That Jesus is standing at the heart's door of every sinner, begging for entrance. We know that Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20 is describing Jesus standing at the door of the church of Laodicea, begging for entrance. And where does that come from? Because they deny total depravity when the Bible teaches it. Let's look at, let's look at John 8.47. John 8.47. Just one more verse on total depravity. This is where men separate because once you, once you allow that man still has a free will, you are going to do anything you can to influence that will to choose Jesus. And they will do anything. Whether it's coffee and donuts, whether it's rock music, any vehicle to get you to invite Jesus. Whether it's candy to get you onto a bus to take you to a church service, you need to ask Brother Keith and Sister Crystal about their bus ministry in the past for a Hiles-like church in Maryland, but we've all grown up, some of us have grown up around those things, and we know anything, the the end justifies the means. You can do anything you want to get someone to say a little one-sentence prayer. I remember my brother, when he was at Bob Jones University, he got so disgusted when he went out on extension with some of those great missionaries there. The student body is expected to go out on extension, which means go get people saved. And my brother went to a playground with some other young men, 
who intimidated and browbeat some children who didn't want to get saved at all, but they wouldn't let the little children alone until the little children made a confession of faith and invited Jesus into their heart. Do you remember that, brother? You've told me about that, and, and something went inside you. This is not right. And then they go back and report their numbers, that they're in the lines of the Apostle Paul, that they ought to be ordained in one of the preacher boys at Bob Jones University, because they forced a child on a playground to say one sentence, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus as my Savior. That has never saved anyone in the history of the world, and it never will. Amen. I'll tell you what saves men. Live from the voice of the King that I represent. Amen. He says, live. And we come alive inside. We're born again. We're regenerated. We're no longer dead. We're alive. And we're alive unto God and we're alive unto Christ. And our hearts are opened so that when we hear the Word of God, we love it. And we want to obey it. It's precious to us. John 8, 43. Why do ye not understand my speech? Even because ye cannot hear my word. They heard every single word he was speaking right here because they're about to kill him. But they didn't understand any of his words spiritually with affection and desire for what he was teaching. He says, ye are of your father the devil. Isn't that what we just read in Ephesians 2? Walking according to the prince of the power of the air? Well, here it is. Ye are of your father the devil. You are still in that state of total depravity, dead in sin, trespasses and sins, operating according to the devil, and that's why you cannot understand my word. John 8:47. now. He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. Well, how do we get of God? We're born again. Because we're born of God. And that makes us of God. Then we're His children. Because when you're born the second time, you become a child, right? You were born the first time, you became a child of your parents and of the devil. And you're born the second time, you become a child of God. You're of God. And you're able to hear and understand His words. But until that happens, there's no preacher that can move one soul to get saved. Do you know how bad it is in total depravity? Luke chapter 16, the rich man in hell said, Abraham, Father, if I can't get out of here, and if Lazarus can't come and give me one drop of water on my parched tongue, at least send Lazarus to my brothers so that they don't come here. What did Abraham say? He said, what did he say? Son, I love your love of souls. I'm going to send Lazarus right now. What did Abraham say? He said they have Moses and the prophets. They have the Old Testament read every Saturday. Isn't that good enough? Father Abraham, you don't understand. When they go to church, they daydream all day, and all they can think about is going to play golf after the service lets out. They need something more than that. If Lazarus was to come back from the dead, they'd repent and they wouldn't come here. What did Abraham say? If they won't hear Moses and the prophets, they wouldn't hear a man if he came back from the dead. What kind of depravity do you call that? Modified? A little bit? A teeny, teeny, tiny bit? Or total depravity? Isn't that something? This is the Word of God. We will agree with the Calvinists and say, Amen to total depravity. You, unconditional election... The Arminians. Oh, did we have a good passage read this morning? Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. 
The Armenian believes God chose those he saw would believe for eternal life. See, the Armenian opens the Bible and, and finds the word, there's election. I can't be a Calvinist. So what does election mean? It means God chose those who first chose Him. That's what they mean by election. God predestinated those who chose Him. Let's read it. God chose those He saw would believe for eternal life. Election is based on man's choice, whose ability is in his remaining free will and goodness. God wants all men to be saved and would never choose only some. That's what an Arminian believes. That's what Finney, Wesley, Moody, Graham, and all the rest preach. Here's what the Calvinist says. God chose some men to eternal life by His own will. When He considered mankind, God saw only sin and no faith or good works. It is God's choice and not the sinner's that is the basis of salvation. Let's go to Psalm 14 for the proof of this one. Psalm 14. Psalm 14. Now, we sang this this morning, but we sang the Psalm 53 version. Psalm 14 and Psalm 13 are twins, fraternal twins. They're not identical, but they're very, very, very close. Two psalms that tell us about this event. And you want to remember this event. We believe with the Calvinist. God did not choose men that had first chosen Him. God chose men that would never choose Him. And He chose to save them in spite of themselves. Praise His great and glorious name. He came and sought me. I wasn't seeking Him. Anytime I've ever been seeking Him, I know one thing. He sought me first. I wasn't loving Him and then He chose to love me. He loved me first and it caused me to love Him. We love Him because He first loved us. Psalm 14, these verses are precious. We do believe that God looked down from heaven upon all the children of men to see if there were any that would believe in Jesus that He could save. Psalm 14, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. You say, well, He should have seen me because I was seeking God. You want to say that in light of this verse? If you've ever been seeking God, it's because God sought you first and changed your life. He chose you before the world began and then He regenerated you. I want you to remember these words, children. Psalm 14, Psalm 53. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. What did He see? They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. There was no one that understood. There was no one that sought after God. They were all in love with their toys, the world, sin, and the devil. There was no one that he saw. So the Arminian scheme of election cannot be true. They say that God looked down and saw those that would believe on him. No one would have believed on him unless God had changed them first. He did look down. We will grant them the first half of their argument. But when he looked down, he saw none that would believe, none seeking after him, none doing good. No, not one. And as our brother read this morning, there is none 
There was no fear of God before their eyes. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. And that statement were summarized in the last verse he read that the whole world is condemned and guilty before God and the whole world there does include you and it does include me. Because we're condemned by it as well. Unconditional election. If God, when God did elect because the Bible uses the word election and tells us He chose. But He obviously didn't choose because of something He saw in man. He chose for the good pleasure of His own will. Amen. So we come to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. You know, they say that God looked down and ordained to eternal life those that believed. Acts 13.48 says, And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. They get it backwards, don't they? Seriously backwards. We agree with the Calvinist here. Election was purely based on God's will. Look at Romans chapter 9 and verse 11. Rebecca had a problem going on in her womb. She had Jacob and Esau wrestling. She had twins. Verse 11 tells us, For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, Not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Here's a mother that had twins in her belly and was told by the God of heaven, I'm choosing one of them and I'm rejecting the other. I love the one, I hate the other. Immediately a human mind would say, That is unfair. Verse 14, Paul is heading you off by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Is God unfair in doing it that way? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Mercy is by the will of God. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Mercy is purely at my disposal based on no good works, no evil works. I choose to show mercy upon whom I choose to show it. And shortly in verse 18, he's going to say, Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth, as he did Pharaoh. And it goes on to describe the potter with the clay. Unconditional election. Notice that it says in verse 11 that the purpose of God according to election might stand. It was not based on foreseen good works. It was not based on foreseen evil works. It was based on the will of God. Right. Unconditional election. God chose us to salvation out of His own good pleasure and for His own praise of His own grace. As Ephesians 1 said several times, according to the good pleasure of His own will, He did these things for us. It wasn't because of what He saw in us. If He had elected us, Based on what he saw in us, he would have elected every single one of us to hell because that's what we deserved and that's the path that we were running in. And this is the truth of the gospel and hardly anyone believes it anymore. Hardly anyone teaches it anymore. Hardly anyone talks about it anymore. But these things are precious. These are, these are a foundation for your feet and for your life. They're an anchor for your soul. 
Because to think that Benny Hinn and Billy Graham and they both preach the very same gospel are preaching the gospel of the Apostle Paul, we, let's give up on religion right now. That's just absurd. It's not found in the Bible and everything even naturally about it is ridiculous. But the Bible condemns it, so we condemn it. Now last Sunday I preached limited atonement to you, so that third column should be easy. Limited atonement. The Arminian says, now remember he started out, man's got a free will and is still good. God will elect anyone to eternal life that chooses him. So obviously they come to the third point and they say Christ died for all men. Jesus died for every single member of the human race. His death did not save any for certain, but only made salvation possible for all who will obey. He paid for all the sins of all men, but they must believe or obey to realize the benefits of his death. That's what an Arminian claims. Jesus just made salvation possible. Now it's up to you to do the actual saving. Jesus will end up not doing any more for those in heaven than he did for those in hell. The Calvinist says, Man was totally depraved. God chose him to salvation by his own will. Therefore, Jesus Christ only died for the elect and because the Bible tells us so. Christ died for those the Father chose to salvation. He died in substitution for them only. He secured all spiritual blessings for the elect and they shall never perish or even one be lost. And we saw that last Sunday. We saw that in a variety of passages and in a variety of ways. Jesus Christ will lose none of those that the Father gave Him. It's a specific number that God gave Him to die for, and He will deliver every one of them into the presence of God and not lose a single one. It's called the church. It's called His brethren. It's called the sanctified. It's called the elect. It's called the foreknown, but they're all going to get glorified because He died for them and secured their eternal life. We looked at those verses last Lord's Day. When you look down at that little paragraph of verses at the bottom, you can see Matthew one twenty one that says, He shall save His people from their sins. John 10.11, the, the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Romans 8.32 and 33 speak of He that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. How shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Amen. Anyone that Jesus Christ died for will certainly be saved. And John 6.39 says, quoting Jesus, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. So we say with the Calvinist, Amen. And we defy the Arminians as preaching another gospel entirely to this point, a made-up heresy based on the devilish doctrine that man is not truly dead. So we come to irresistible grace. The Arminians. The Spirit convicts all men, but only some obey Him to receive regeneration and be born again. Sinners may easily resist this operation of grace. Until they cooperate, God cannot and will not quicken against their resisting free will. This is the Arminian position. Man has a free will and God would never push that free will to do anything it didn't want to do. I'm glad He does. Amen. Because my will, was, my will was free. It was free from doing anything toward God. It was free from righteousness, but it was a slave to sin. Yeah. 
And so was yours. I'm glad he overrode my will and he said, I will be thou clean. Amen. The Calvinist says, the Spirit powerfully works to bring the elect to conversion. Faith and repentance are God's gifts and they cannot resist the Spirit's work. All of the elect will believe and obey the gospel. The Calvinist comes along and confuses things. Let me try to simplify this. Confuses things by melding regeneration and conversion together into one thing. And here's where the problem comes from. They are still sacramentalists. The preaching of the gospel conveys inward grace. They believe that the waters of baptism convey inward grace. They believe the Lord's Supper conveys inward grace. And they believe the preaching of the gospel conveys inward grace. That God takes the effort of preaching to your intellects and your minds the truth of the gospel and uses that to regenerate your souls. That is called the gospel means of regeneration, which puts regeneration and conversion right together and melds them together. Because if it's the gospel means of regeneration, then you're believing the gospel in order to or while you are, or as an obvious, necessary result from regeneration. They just work the two together. And see, we just cannot go there. We cannot go there. God hasn't guaranteed anyone in faith or obedience. God's guaranteed all glorified in heaven, but He hasn't guaranteed all will obey the gospel. And to what degree they'll obey the gospel. God regenerates according to his purpose in salvation, but He doesn't guarantee conversion. If you say He guarantees conversion, please write me a list of what aspects of conversion you're talking about. Would it be conversion in the doctrine of baptism? Would it be conversion that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God? Or will the incarnate Son of God be a necessary prerequisite? Will it be inviting Jesus into your heart? What aspects of those acts of conversion are you talking about? Is it a one-time event or is it a lifelong process? Tell me more about this that's required by God's sovereignty. God has not guaranteed all those things. Because the things I just described are left up to the obedience of the elect, regenerated child of God and the faithfulness of his parents and his preacher. Because if a preacher doesn't do his job, they will not be saved. Do you know what that means? They will not be converted. They will be lost. If a preacher does not do his job, they will be lost. 1 Timothy 4.16 Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. If a minister does not preach the truth and does not preach it faithfully, a congregation and the pastor will be lost as far as this practical phase of salvation that we teach in another outline, which means conversion. Conversion is, the, is us turning from one way of living to another way of living. And every man, on the, every one of God's elect, has varied on the spectrum of conversion. There are no two alike. God has not guaranteed some minimum level. What He has guaranteed is that we'll be born again. Because except a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Nowhere does he say, except you believe a certain number of things you can't get into the kingdom of heaven. Look at the churches of the New Testament. Look at the churches of the Old Testament. 
how much did they need to be converted? If they had to believe on Jesus Christ, did they have to believe on Him by name? If they didn't have to believe on Him by name, did they have to believe on Him by dying on a cross? If they didn't have to believe on Him dying on a cross, what did they have to believe about Him? That some lamb was coming in the future that might have four legs or it might have two? How much did they have to believe? That is all the aspects of conversion. And that is dependent on the revelation of God, your obedience, and the faithfulness of your teachers. We will not let the Calvinist put those two together and say God's guaranteeing them both. We will say God guarantees regeneration. He has not guaranteed conversion. Conversion is God's blessing upon the means that we use because of regeneration. There were saints that died at Corinth. They died while harboring an incestuous fornicator. They died while denying the resurrection of the dead. They died while abusing the Lord's Supper, among other errors. They were unconverted in at least those three. And those three are pretty hefty. There were the churches of Galatia that believed you had to keep the law of Moses and be circumcised in order to be saved. Do you want to say that was conversion? as long as they tack Jesus on to circumcision? I see in Revelation chapter 18 and verse 4, Jesus Christ saying to those in the Roman church, Come out of her, my people. Regenerated, elect, but not converted. The verses at the bottom of the page, we deny the Calvinistic position. First, the Arminian one's ridiculous. That the hope that you can resist the power of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus Christ wants to regenerate someone, they're not even involved. It's just God doing it. I mean, what condition are you going to, what condition are you going to fulfill in order to be born again? When the Bible says, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, what are you going to do? Because until he's born again, he can't even see it. How will you show it to him? Will a video help? Will a flannel graph presentation help? Will a testimony from a man from hell count? Or a man from heaven? Will that help a man see the kingdom of God? No, Jesus said a man has to be born again to be able to see anything. The Bible says the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. It comes back to total depravity. God's grace in changing us and in regenerating us has to be irresistible. Because we would all resist it. So the Armenians are totally wrong and we can just forget them. It's just ridiculous. That's not the Bible description at all. The Bible says we're dead. If we're dead, then what are we going to do for a dead person? A dead person doesn't need a cure. A dead person needs a resurrection. A dead person doesn't need a doctor. He needs a creator. Here's our paragraph in this page. God regenerates the elect from death in sins by His power. It's the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. It is a resurrecting power. It changes man and gives him a new man inside. And that new man is willing and desirous and wants to do the will of God only and that continually. But to the degree that man is unfaithful, 
that new man can be starved to death. The Spirit of God with that man can be quenched or grieved. If he has a pastor that doesn't teach him the truth, he's got a craving and a desire and a love for the God and the things of God, but he'll never hear them to be able to obey them and to confess them and to believe them. His new man believes it all. His new man believes every single bit of the gospel because the Bible says, My laws will I write in their hearts. They shall all be taught of God. They won't need a man to teach them in here, which is a result of regeneration. God regenerates the elect from death and sins by His power. Man is totally passive in his quickening and cannot resist. The born-again child may resist gospel conversion, but his salvation to heaven is sure. The gospel is for peace and assurance now, not regeneration. We do not believe in the gospel means of regeneration. That by preaching to you, I send something out that the Holy Spirit uses to change your heart. The Holy Spirit changes your heart by His own power at His own time and you do not know when He comes or where He's going. He does it the same way the wind blows and all you can see is the effect. And that effect varies from Lot and Samson to Abraham and Paul. And the difference in effect is enormous. And that difference in effect is why the rest of the New Testament is written which tells us by commandments on how we're supposed to live. If, if God was guaranteeing all these things, we wouldn't need the New Testament. We could quit at the, at the end of John. Now that we've got the Gospels about Jesus Christ, we wouldn't need the rest telling us how we ought to live. We need the rest. Because though we've got a new man inside, the way God's ordained it, we still have an old man. And we still have a mind that chooses. Now we've got one. Now we've got a real choice. And so the Gospel comes, and either we obey it or we don't. To varying degrees. And so we are able to resist the grace of God in conversion in how much we change. Conversion means to change something. If you have a converter, it takes something in one side and sends something out the other side that's different. To the degree, we, the degree to which we are changed depends upon the amount of revelation God sends us, the preacher we have, and our faithfulness. Right. It can be very small. It can be huge. Inside, we know everything. There is within us that capacity for immediate recognition of the truth if we were to hear it. But we resist in conversion. We do not resist in regeneration. A dead man doesn't resist. God just says live. Lazarus did not resist and Lazarus didn't have to cooperate coming out of the tomb. Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth. And that is the difference right there. That's regeneration. And then, men had to strip the clothes off of Lazarus so that he could have a little freedom of movement and walk around like a normal man. If they hadn't stripped his clothes off, Lazarus would have been a very incapacitated living man. And that's what gospel ministers do, and I don't preach like this very often. I'm not really using this as a proof. I'm just using it as an illustration. It's the degree that a man of God is faithful in teaching us the truth is the degree that we're converted. The fifth column, Perseverance of the Saints. The saying is, once saved, always saved. Is that true or not? You know, the way that that's used is by Arminians. Because Arminians have left James Arminius. Arminius did not believe that your salvation was secure. Arminius believed that if you sinned after you were saved, 
saved to him meant coming forward and inviting Jesus into your heart. That's what they call conversion. I fear too many Calvinists think that's conversion. That little event by itself is absolutely nothing and worthless and meaningless. It is not entered in the books of heaven. It has no value at all. That is not a saved life. Haven't I preached to you enough what a saved life is? It's a changed life from top to bottom. And done continually over time. Once saved, always saved. That's what an Arminian looks at, that once you make the decision. But look, at in order to be finally saved, a sinner must continue in faith and good works. Some hold that once saved, there is no chance of falling. But many argue that losing one's grace does occur for every sin after conversion. The church of Christ believes you can lose your salvation. A true Arminian believes you can lose your salvation. And so you're confessing sins all the time in order to get re-saved. In the sense of, so that you can go to heaven. The Calvinist says, all who were chosen by God, bought by Christ, and given faith by the Spirit, shall be eternally saved. They are kept in faith and holiness by the power of God, and thus all will persevere to the end. That's what a Calvinist believes, because they've mixed regeneration and conversion together, and they believe, and this is where they become fatalists. And if they ever applied it consistently, they would be fatalists. Because God is guaranteeing that they will persevere. Persevere is something you do. It's not something that God can do for you. Persevere is something you do. We deny that. We deny that God has guaranteed that you will persevere. Every one of you that has a spirit-taught heart and knows the Word of God knows that you have not persevered. Your faith goes up and down. Your holiness goes up and down. Your love of Christ goes up and down. You are told to keep all of those things up. You are told to persevere. It's a commandment, but we don't all do it all the time. They, they say it's guaranteed. Well, if it's guaranteed, let's just tear out the epistles. In fact, I'm going to quit and go do something more interesting. Because why should I be in this job if it's guaranteed? If it's guaranteed, why do we have a verse that says, I can be lost and my hearers can be lost unless I'm faithful? What do those verses mean? They mean that we can all be lost. Not from heaven. Not from heaven. Not from regeneration. Not from Christ's death. Not legally. Not eternally. Not finally. Not from glorification. Do you? Are you kidding? You know better than that. No one that God foreknew and predestined is going to be lost from glorification but we can be lost to holding the truth. You say, how much truth? Could we lose it all? We could lose it all. We could get really messed up. If, if not, why did Paul tell the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 3 that exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin and depart from the living God? You say, is that possible? That's possible. Look at the record in the Bible. Following Jezebel, the prophetess, and the other heirs that we see even in the New Testament and that we see among the Israelites in the Old Testament. You know, I love Psalm 89 that tells us though his children would disobey and he would chasten them with the rod, yet he would not take his faithfulness away from them. And that's the faithfulness I'm counting on, not mine. God has not guaranteed my faithfulness. God has promised his faithfulness. That's all the difference in the world. God has not guaranteed my faithfulness. He's promised His faithfulness. Faithful is He that calleth you 
who also will do it. Who will do it? God will do it. God will keep you because of His faithfulness. When we look at these verses that are down below, we can find that once God has has chosen someone to salvation, sent Christ to die for them, and the Spirit has regenerated them, not one will be lost. We disagree with the Calvinist. The Arminian, a true Arminian says you can lose your salvation every day, and you can get it back before lunchtime. The Calvinist says God has guaranteed that you're always going to live a good life. I don't know what they mean by that, because no one in the Bible ever did it, except Paul and a couple of exceptions. You know, but you go read their writings and you can't come to any other conclusion, but God's going to cause you to persevere. Perseverance is something you do. If you're going to say that God's guaranteeing your perseverance, then you're a fatalist. We believe that God preserves His elect. They will not be lost. Every single one of them will be saved. There is nothing that can separate them from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are His preserves. We are divine preserves. We are not divine perseveres. If if so, what are we here for? You know why we're here? To help one another hold fast the profession of our faith. And that is why we assemble together. And churches do not just get together to hear some dry doctrine out of the pulpit, but they get together to encourage each other. Brethren, let's keep living for the Lord so that we can have the evidence in our life that we are God's elect. That Christ did die for us and the Spirit did irresistibly regenerate us. This is the difference between Calvinism, Arminianism, and the truth. Tulip, children. We agree with the Calvinists on T-U and L. Total depravity, unconditional election, and limited atonement. We go past the Calvinist in irresistible grace because we say regeneration is irresistible, but the gospel is resistible. As any reading of the New Testament proves on every single page. And perseverance, God hasn't guaranteed it. He's called us to it, but He will preserve us. God will preserve us by His power, and not one shall be lost. This is the truth of the gospel. This is what God has shown us. This is how we want to live. The only way that we can know that we're one of God's elect is to live a holy life, believing on His Son, Jesus Christ, Casting all our cares upon Him, hating this world, departing from it, rejecting it, and laying hold of the gospel, believing it, loving it, and obeying it in every part of our lives. To the degree that we do that, we can know that we're God's elect. And that's why there is incredible incentive in what I've just given you for holy and righteous living. Not because God's guaranteed it. There is no incentive in that plan. I'll just go home and sit in the lazy boy and wait for God to persevere me into holiness. What I'm preaching to you is that we ought to walk out of here right now and commit ourselves to a holy life that we might lay hold of that election, limited atonement, and irresistible grace that we've just heard described to us. And we lay hold of it by claiming it to ourselves and, and making our calling and election sure by our obedience. May the Lord be praised.